slide, and we'll get into the teaching. So, uh, Jesus, right now we come to you, all of us, Lord, just as a, as a community, as a family of all stripes, all colors, all backgrounds, all walks of life, some doing really good, life seems fine, others um, just full of despair, uh, brokenness, we feel fragile, this very instant, we just feel like we're about to fall apart. God, we thank you that no matter uh, where we are at, that there's a place for us at the table, that we can come, we can be accepted, we can be loved, that it's okay for us in this moment to not be okay. Uh, you will meet us right where we're at, and you will bring healing and a word and intervention. That's what we look to you right now for. So we pray, God, that you would just open our hearts to hear what you have to teach us. We want to learn. We, have a posture, we want to have a posture that grows and learns from you and is shaped by who you are. And we commit this morning in your hands, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to start by showing a little uh, clip. Um, I'll, I'll talk about this in two seconds. Uh, if you are familiar, Barna Group is, I think, the leading like Christian or religious type of pollster um, in, in America. They spend a lot of time and energy, as far as their staff is concerned, trying to make sense of Christianity in America today. Um, God bless you. And they are like the, the lead on terms of uh, research and whatnot, development, as far as all that goes and is concerned. Uh, in June, to, uh, June 5th, 2019, uh, they had done this series of um, um, questions and whatnot, and what they discovered was these, that they had the top 100 uh, post-Christian cities in America. Uh, congratulations, slow 805 people. We, we made number nine. Number nine. I, I want you to pause and just think about this. Um, so some of you might be wondering, like, what, what does that even mean? Um, I'll unpack that, but if you want, you can just go to the Barna group or just do a Google search for this, and you'll kind of discover it. Uh, basically means um, a secularized or non-Christian, more influenced by non-Christian ideas and scripture type of a concept, where for the most part, um, one of the questions that they had asked in here was um, one of the ways in which to kind of frame this to try to get a better understanding. What, what does a post-Christian mean? Um, was how often or how regularly do people like read their Bible or go to church? And, and I know, because I've lived here for 26 years, that you can have people that are, are Christian, that will call themselves Christians or followers of Jesus, but maybe go to church once every four weeks or once, you know, once a month or so, something like that, once every couple weeks. Um, but the point of the matter is, is that this is, these are some of the ways, these are just like a number of like 20 different ways in which they have come to decide or determine that uh, San Luis Obispo, uh, Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, 805, um, is sort of a post Christian type of a community. Now, that kind of creates a, a challenge for us because, um, again, we, we beat out San Francisco and Hollywood. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? So I don't know what you think about San Francisco or Hollywood or some of these other more influential cities in America, um, but, but as far as like being post-Christian, we, we, we beat them. Um, so the point that I would make is, is this. The big question that I really want to kind of wrap our minds around as we begin to read this is this question. So because we live in the ninth most post-Christian city in America, how do we maintain spiritual vitality and longevity? That's the question I really want for us to think about because it becomes a pertinent question that plays into the story of, of Daniel. Daniel is living in kind of the epitome of secularized culture and society. I don't think there was a lot of Christians in Babylon um, 3,500 years ago, nor were there a lot of followers of Yahweh in Babylon. So uh, we're talking the Daniel and his crew were the extreme end of the minority of people that followed uh, God. 
Um, but nonetheless, what we see, even though Daniel did not have access to many of the things that you and I have access to, like podcasts or Bibles or apps that we can download or uh, uh, multiple church gatherings that we can attend or small groups we can attend to or b- prayer meetings or whatever, we have multiple means at our availability to access, to access, to get involved in. Even though Daniel had none of that, um, and he was alienated from his family, from his community, uh, uh, family, friends were, were no longer there. He did not have Bible apps. He couldn't listen to podcasts. He didn't have a little pocket Bible. He didn't have any of these things. And yet somehow, in the midst of living in a world militaristic superpower like Babylon, uh, he maintained an extreme vitality and longevity. So... Um, I, as I have read and just studied the life of Daniel, I'm, I'm so inspired by his life. I mean, it's, it's mind-blowing to just think about here's, here's a guy uh, ripped out of his context of uh, Israel, and yet he's just kind of maintained this long obedience in the same direction, to borrow a phrase from Eugene Peterson. So with that, what I want to do in terms of asking this question, we're going to jump now into Daniel chapter 6, which is a, a famous passage that most of us are probably familiar with. In fact, if you were to do like the word association game and I were to say Daniel and, um, and you were to fill in the blank, most of us would, would be able to finish the answer right there. It would be like Daniel and the lion's den, right? Um, that's the story that we're going to read. So for many of us, uh, especially if you were uh, raised in any form of a Christian background or culture or whatnot, um, you are familiar with, you know, veggie tales or the story of Daniel, and you have these images of, you know, Daniel just chilling in a little lion's den, like petting lions and feeding them and whatnot, and it's all, it's all docile and happy, and uh, I, you know, just, again, just Google it, and you can find all these, like, funny images, and, um, and, and as well as intense images, but um, the story of Daniel lion's den, um, it is not a child's story. It's, it's actually a pretty intense story. Um, and it's literature that I would say that is intended to stimulate a revolt, not a violent revolt, but a revolt of spiritual growth and vitality as well as longevity. Because that's what we see happen within the life of Daniel. That's what I take away when I read this story of Daniel chapter 6 is here's a guy that somehow is able to maintain this uh, obedience to, to God. And uh, like I look at that, I'm like, oh my goodness, like, we have so much. And yet, so oftentimes, we, we, we flail when it comes to this. And so, with that, what I want to do is I want to read the story. We're going to, like we've done, uh, we've read just the long passages of stories. In fact, um, we said from the very beginning of the book of Daniel is that the book basically breaks down nicely into two main categories or two main divisions. The first division is chapters 1 through 6, which is what we're at right now. And that's kind of like the narrative element of uh, Daniel's life. It's the story about Daniel and uh, kind of uh, biographical about his life and existence. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar gets thrown in the story as well. And then from Daniel chapter 7 on to the end of the book are more the prophetic elements. These are kind of like the dreams and the visions and the uh, unpacking of that. So um, what we're going to do, we're going to finish reading the the narrative. uh, And then in two weeks when we get back into the remainder of the book of Daniel... Um, we'll kind of be moving at a little bit faster pace, actually, that we, uh, faster than what we've been looking at. So some weeks we might cover a couple chapters, and so it'll kind of end pretty quickly um, once we get to chapter 7. So what I want to do right now is we jump into chapter 6. Uh, we're just going to read through the whole thing. We're going to look at it as basically six different scenes in the life of Daniel, uh, chapter 6. Um, there has been a, re- a regime change, an empire change that we saw from last week. Uh, the story ended with kind of the empire of Babylon being overcome 
by this other ancient world dominating empire called the uh, Medo-Persian Empire run by a guy named Darius um, um, from a geographical or uh, a historical perspective. Uh, there's not much known about this guy named Darius, which has actually led some scholars um, from a skeptical standpoint um, doubt the Bible and be like, well, we know for sure that the Bible is false because the book of Daniel tells us about this guy named Darius. We don't know anything about this guy named Darius. Um, and then there's other biblical scholars that actually believe that it's probably a reference to another guy by the name of Cyrus, which we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, but I want to read the story and just, just listen to it because it's a really compelling story. If, if anything that maybe you can take out of today is just think of it as, like I've said before, like story time with Pastor B. Um, so we'll take a look at the six different scenes. Each scene, I kind of gave like a little bit of a, a character or, or title of it. Um, so the first scene we'll take a look at has to do with the subject matter of character as we see Daniel's character kind of come out in full spectrum. So let me go ahead and read, and then we will begin to jump in, make some observations at the end, and uh, we have kind of like a little treat at the end as well that hopefully it'll all tie everything together and you guys will feel encouraged and strengthened and lifted up today. So let's start with Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. It says this uh, in scene 1 about the subject of character. We see Daniel's character come out in full bloom. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdoms 120 satraps uh, to be throughout the entire kingdom. And over them, there were three high officials, of whom Daniel was one of those satraps uh, who should give account. So the king might suffer no loss. So, so far, we know that Daniel was a very, very high degree, high level um, worker within the empire. He had a very, very significant role within the Medo-Persian empire. Verse 3, it says, and then Daniel became distinguished above all of the high officials in the satraps because there was an excellent spirit that was found in him. And the king planned to set him over the entire kingdom. And then the high officials and the satraps, they sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. There was no error or fault in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find in connection with him uh, against his law, uh, the, against uh, the law of his God. So, so far we see that obviously the stage is being set. Daniel's got a very, very high-level position, uh, and there are a bunch of other employees, co-workers that hate Daniel, like good old-fashioned just jealousy. Obviously, these people, they think they should be at the high end of the food chain. Daniel's at the high end of the food chain. They're not happy about that. They want to sabotage Daniel's good name, so they're trying to figure out how do we go ahead and do that. So then that leads now into the second scene, which is the conspiracy that begins to form in verse 6. Then these high officials and the satraps, they came by agreement to the king, and they said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All right, that's the good thing to say to a king. So if you want a nice, like, little good uh, subject matter to walk away from, to apply to your life, anytime you come in contact with a king, say, live forever. I'm just joking. And then it says, all the high officials of the kingdom and the prefects and the satraps and the counselors and the governors, they all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction. And whoever makes petition of any good, any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. <laughs> Verse 8, now, O king, establish an injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So in other words, these guys basically, they recognize Daniel worships only God. 
He's consistent and devoted to his prayer time to Yahweh God, and yet they want to sabotage his good name. So they're thinking the only way that we can do this is if we create some sort of conspiracy. They go and they make an appeal to the king's, you know, arrogance and privilege and power and, you know, self adulation and worship and whatnot and they're like hey we should for 30 days have like this holiday where everybody just worships you wouldn't that be an amazing like holiday and the king's like that sounds awesome yes let's sign that where do i sign right and they're like sign right here by the way this whole thing just happens to be printed out ready to go and we happen to have a pen in our hand right king signs it and it's all ready to go so Again, the aim behind this is to trap Daniel because they know that Daniel will probably or will likely refuse to worship. So the big question then in our minds is what will Daniel do? Which then leads into the third scene, which I've just conveniently described as defiance because that's how we see Daniel responding. Verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, all right? I, just, I love this because it's kind of like it keeps you on the edge of the seat. Like what, what's going to happen? Daniel knows. His documents have been signed. Is he going to freak out? Is he going to stress? Is he going to have a panic attack? Is he going to go run to the king? And is he going to, is he going to play tit for tat? Is he going to play politics? How is Daniel going to respond to this? I love this. Because check it out. This is what Daniel does. When he knew that the document was signed, he says, he went to the house that had windows in the upper chamber that were open towards Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day. And he prayed. And he gave thanks before his God just as he'd done previously dang he's so punk rock i love daniel so amazing this is like he knows this is defiance right he knows he's gonna get in trouble he knows this is the very thing that you are not to do and daniel's like i'm doing it i love this about daniel verse 11 then these men they came by an agreement and they found daniel making petition and plea before his god then they came near and they said to the king concerning the injunction oh king did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition of any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions? And the king answered and said, the thing stands according to the law of the Medes and Persians and cannot be revoked. So here's the catch, verse 13. Then they answered and they said to the king, Daniel, whom is one of the exiles from Judah, which this, this is interesting when I was reading this. So in the story of Daniel, right, the narrative, the narrative or the person who's writing the story um, describes Daniel as one of the high officials. How do these jealous co-workers define Daniel? Or just one of the exiles. Dehumanize him. Is, is that what we do? Isn't that how we think about the other? Just think of them in the most uh, abysmal, dehumanized form or version that we can think of. And for them, to, to them, Daniel is nothing more than just, he's just an immigrant. He's just an exile. He's just a nobody. He's worthless. And they go on to basically describe, well, Daniel, the exile who came from Judah, he pays no attention to your king or the injunction that you have signed, but he makes petition or he prays three times a day. So this kind of leads us now into the fourth movement or scene within a story, which is the king's distress, because obviously the king, like Daniel, and he had placed him at a very high degree, high level. In verse uh, 14, it says, Then the king, when he heard these words, he was much distressed, and he set his mind out to deliver Daniel. Then he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. And then these men came by agreement to the king, and they said to the king, Know, O king, that it is the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance of the kings shall be established, uh, can be changed. This is, this is the problem now. The king's like, great, how are we going to deal with this? Uh, we got a, we got a problem on our hands. I like Daniel, 
my stupid law has now, you know, created a context where Daniel is going to be cast into the den of lions. So how and who is going to deliver Daniel, this, this man that I, I like? Verse 16, then the king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And then the stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of the Lord's, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace, and he spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought in, and sleep fled him. So obviously he had a horrible night, couldn't sleep. He's worried, full of anxiety over whether or not Daniel, this guy that he obviously cares for, uh, whether or not Daniel's going to survive. Um, Leads to the uh, next little movement within the story, the deliverance, verse 19. How are we all doing? You guys okay? Just maintaining the storyline, that's all good? Good story so far? All right, let's keep going. Verse 19, then at the break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the lion's den. And as he came to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. And the king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the most high, or the living God, uh, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? In verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel and shut the lions' mouths that they had not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den so that Daniel was taken out of the den and no harm was found to him because he had trusted in his God, and then the king commanded. Pay attention. This is actually kind of crazy. This is this is this is to me why I would say this is not a child's story. Listen, to it. it says, and then those who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought in and cast into the lion's den. Not just them, they, their children, and their wives. Just pause and think about that. This is this is the command. This is, in other words, this is not a ruler to be trifled with. You don't mess with this guy. He's got power. Uh, with his decree, people die. That's who he is. And uh, he's, he, he obviously doesn't know God. He knows of God's power. He's seen it. But he's still in this process of understanding the, the extent of it. And it says, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and they broke all their bones in pieces. And this leads to the final movement of the story, which is the decree that the king makes. Verse 25 and 28. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, the nations, the languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all of my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never end. Verse 27, he delivers and he rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. And he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. In verse 28, then Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius in the reign of Cyrus, the king of Persia. So I want to pause real quick and just make a, like a real fast little kind of note. Um, uh, some of your Bible translations might have a little bit of a variance in terms of that very last verse, verse 28. Uh, one of the reasons for that is because in the, it's written in the Aramaic. So a lot of scholars have kind of asked this question, is this a reference to Darius and a guy named Cyrus? This, this is important. Or are they two, one and the same? 
And some scholars have kind of come to this conclusion that Darius is just a, a Hebrew name or a biblical name that was given to this guy by the name of Cyrus. Why does that make a big deal? Um, for this reason. For, for one, the name Darius does not appear in any like secular types of um, archaeological digs. And so, um, but the name Cyrus appears all over the place. So people, we, we know from archaeological digs that there, there was a guy by the name of Cyrus. He actually did live. He actually was a, a Medo-Persian king. Um, and why that matters is because if Darius and Cyrus are one and the same, this, here's another like little interesting tidbit. So next slide I'll show you. In the book of Second Chronicles, which if you're reading the Bible from like a, just a Hebrew perspective, the last book in the entire Hebrew Bible is actually not Malachi, the way we would typically have it within our Bibles, but it's actually the book of Second Chronicles. This is actually the last book of that Bible for the Jews. Um, and this is the very last verse of the entire Old Testament that we would call the Old Testament. Just listen to it. It's kind of a summary of history up until this point. So just it'll, it'll all come together. Um, so if Darius and Cyrus are one and the same, this is significant. So here's what we are told. The king of the Chaldeans, or in other words, Chaldeans could be Babylon, uh, killed Israel's people, and all the treasures were then taken to Babylon. They, were, they burned the temple. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They took many into exile in Babylon, and they became servants until the establishment of the king, kingdom of Persia. So that's all just history. That's Daniel chapter 1 through 5 that we just you know, read over the past several months. Um, that the people of Israel were taken off into exile, the temple was destroyed, their wall was knocked down, the people were exiled. Those three things are, are crucial to the storyline, not only of the ancient uh, scripture, but also the story of Daniel, but also to what's gonna, about to happen right now. Um, because this big question is, has God abandoned or forsaken the people of Israel? That's a big, that's a big question. Um, because if you're Jewish, living in that ancient world, and your temple was like destroyed, and your wall was broken down, you would be wrestling with this question. Maybe God has abandoned us. Maybe we're left alone. Maybe we're orphaned. Or maybe something else is happening. Maybe what it looks like, abandonment, is actually not abandonment, but postponement. God is intervening. God is working in ways that we're not always in tune to or aware of, that God is doing something that are, that's not very visible to us. In other words, He's working in the shadows. He's working behind the scenes. He's working underneath the hood in ways that we're not always aware of. And that seems to be exactly what's happening in this story. Because listen, it goes on and say in verse 22. Now we've kind of moved into the Persian kingdom. It says, now in the first year of Cyrus, which again could be Darius, king of Persia. That's, that's literally Daniel chapter 6, what we just read. First year of Darius. Uh, what happens? Uh, it says, then the Lord stirred up the king. So what we're told so far, that God stirs up in the heart of this guy, Cyrus, Darius, whatever. And uh, so he then makes his proclamation throughout all of his kingdom in writing. And then he says, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build for him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. However, or whoever is among you and all the people May the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. So in other words, this becomes sort of the, the decree from this guy named Cyrus um, to basically send all the Jewish people that want to go back to leave Babylon, leave the Medo-Persian Empire, to travel whatever, you know, 2,000 miles or whatever it was, back into their homeland to reconstruct the temple, to reconstruct their wall, to repopulate the land, the territory. Um, if you're looking for biblical uh, examples of this, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Ezra, um, all, a handful of other uh, what's called post-exilic prophets uh, speak to this very moment. But all of this began by God speaking to this king. 
And then this king responding. And, and if this is the case, if this is true, this is amazing. Because is it possible that right after this whole interaction with Daniel and the lion's den, and this king worried about his, his friend who he cared about, watching his miraculous deliverance, is that, is that not perhaps the very thing that, that precipitated the movement of God to lead him to create this national re-identification of the people of Israel? In other words, did God not use or perhaps use these types of circumstances to move the hands of, of kings? And, and here's, here's all I want to say with regard to this. I don't know what type of circumstances you're going through, you're facing in your life right now, how dire they seem, how distressing they might feel. You have a God that's bigger than those things, that knows how to move and reshape the landscape and terraform our lives and transform people's hearts. This is who God is. I don't know what you came here this morning believing God is capable of doing. I hope you know that you have a God that doesn't just rule up in heaven, but rules on earth. It's a God that actually moves in miracle-working power. I don't know what types of circumstances or dilemmas you face. This is a God that can intervene and reshape your life in positive ways. That's what we see God does here. So with that being said, I want to just uh, give a little bit of a synopsis of how Daniel is noted in the text. And then we'll kind of finish up with some thoughts. So Daniel is noted in this story for, number one, his excellence. So he's a really hard worker. Secondly, uh, his character. Um, show me your character, and I'll show you your future. Who you are is who you're going to become. We can all think of people right now in our lives who are like, they're a horrible human being. They did not just become a horrible pe human being. They've been working hard at it for a long time. I'm really serious on this. They've been working on it hard for a long time. The habits, the actions, the, the activities of their life have been shaping them for who they are now. But the same is true for you. What's under your hood matters. We call that character. Daniel was a man who had this long obedience in the same direction. He was consistently making choices and decisions in his life that aligned with Yahweh God. That when he was faced with crisis or when he was faced with temptation, when he was faced with um, committing certain sins or omitting certain practices, Daniel, like in chapter 1, says, I cannot commit sin against God, and so therefore I'm not going to eat defiled food. And then he says, I'm not going to omit praying. So you can, you can throw me in the lion's den. I'm not going to stop praying. I'm not going to stop this practice because that is the very practice that connects me to the heart of God. And God is my treasure. So character is, is who Daniel was. Uh, thirdly, we see that Daniel had this deep commitment to faithfulness, and in particular, uh, to prayer. We see all throughout this chapter, this whole chapter is really about prayer, right? Did you, did you catch that? Daniel's praying. Uh, he defiantly uh, rebels by praying. The whole injunction from the king is about praying, pray to me, right? And then it ends with kind of a prayer, like a declaration of the greatness of God, like an affirmation of God's power. So if you want to think of it this way, that Daniel has spiritual vitality and Longevity, spiritual vitality and longevity. So with that being said, what I want to jump in is I want to like look specifically at the focus of uh, the practice of prayer in Daniel's life and just make some final thoughts with regard to this. And I want to ask three questions. One, why pray? How should we pray? Thirdly, what happens when we pray? Number one, why pray? So we see that Daniel obviously engaged in this practice of prayer three times a day. 
And he did it defiantly. He did it even though it was in contradistinction to the actual laws of the Medo-Persians, which landed him in direct opposition, hostile opposition to the state. And yet he was like, I'm not going to give it up. That's what I do. Uh, so why pray? Uh, Karl Barth, uh, one of the um, theologians during the time of the Hitler regime, uh, Nazi Germany, he was a Christian, loved Jesus, and he wrote this. He says, uh, the clasp of hands, uh, the cla to clasp the hands of prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of this world. I love this phrase. To clasp the hands of prayer, to, to begin to pray is a way of basically saying, I will begin to engage and form an uprising against the hostility, the, the disorderliness of this world. We're going to fight against this. And so that's what we see is a really powerful way. We see that Daniel is doing that. Uh, secondly, Eugene Peterson um, has this great quote. He has written so much amazing stuff on prayer that this is, uh, I can literally just read quotes from him all day long, and they're so good, but I'm just going to give you this one. So everything begins in prayer is what he says. Anything creative, anything powerful, anything biblical, insofar as we are participants in, originates in prayer. Praying puts us at risk of getting involved in God's conditions. Just pause and think about that. Praying puts us at risk of getting involved in God's conditions. Obviously, he's writing, you know, tongue-in-cheek. But the point of the matter is, is that if you're going to pray, he goes on to say, uh, be slow. Because if you're going to pray, if you're going to have a serious heart that says, I'm going to engage with praying... Be ready because you will have to face the disorderliness of your own heart and the reorientation of your own ways to the ways of God. That's what he goes on to say. Praying most often doesn't get us what we want. God's not your magic genie, <laughs> right? God's not like the, 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 the magic genie in the sky. You rub his tummy or you say the right little enchantment. You do the right little things and you somehow word it all in a certain way and you get what you want. He's not, you know, a, a, a cosmic, like, uh, vending machine uh, or, uh, you know, what do we call it? Whack a, what do we call it? Pinata. Guys, not this, like, cosmic pinata. You whack and all of a sudden you get all these, like, little toys and trinkets and stuff that you want. Um, he goes on to say, praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but God, but what God wants. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be our best interest. In other words, what he's saying is that oftentimes when we begin to pray, we begin to realize, like, it's, it's, this is not about me getting what I want. It's more about God doing what God wants to do through me. God changing my heart, reshaping my desires so that they are in line with his. Um, and yes, there's an element where we come to God. We pray what we, what we desire. But what, we, what happens over a prolonged period of time, we begin to pray things like, Lord, let your will be done. Let your kingdom come. Um, and he goes on to say, and when we realize what is going on, is often too late to go back. So he says, be slow to pray. So we see Daniel engaged in this action of praying. And there's one final thing I was thinking about with regard to this is, I just kind of had written it out because sometimes it helps me to just uh, flesh words and thoughts out as I had written this out. It's that you are dissatisfied with your own progress and or your growth as a follower of Jesus. Or if you are dissatisfied with your experience with the church, uh, change your approach. You've got to change your approach. Because here's what ends up happening oftentimes. We look at the lack of progress in our own life or the slowness of the progress in our own life or even our lack of experience in, in, a, in a church or a small group or a community group or whatever. And then what ends up happening is we usually do something like this. We're just like, I'm, I'm done here. I'm, I'm out. And our, our culture and our society is one 
where the commitment level is, has just shrunk to minimalism, right? Where, again, if you're in a relationship and you're not getting out of that relationship what you really think you deserve or what you should be getting, what ends up happening is we look for back doors to remove ourselves from that relationship. When maybe what we really need to do is reach, uh, change our approach. How, how begin to ask bigger questions. How do, I re, how do I change my posture in this relationship to press in, to dig in deeper, to get to know this person even more in ways? Because I had finished up writing here that if you keep on doing what you're doing, you will only keep on experiencing what you've been experiencing. Just keep doing the same thing you're doing. You will continue just to get the same results over and over and over again. So my invitation would be to change it up to think differently about how you're going about your own spiritual progress and development and discipleship and or your engagement with the local church community. Begin to ask bigger questions. God, how can I engage differently in this community and more intensely, especially in the arena of, of praying? And this will all make sense to you as we kind of further answer some of these other questions. Uh, secondly, how should we pray? Uh, two things. One, in a posture of faith. We see Daniel doing this. We're told that Daniel goes up into his room. He opens the windows towards Jerusalem. He gets down on his knees three times a day and he prays. Now, a couple of things to consider. Number one, there's no biblical injunction anywhere in the entire Bible that says, when you pray, pray towards Jerusalem. So this is a practice that Daniel did not need to do. But it was one that he'd done. So the question is why? You know, scholars ask these questions. Why did Daniel pray towards Jerusalem? Um, the, the best idea that can perhaps come to mind is that there's a psalm that says, you know, lest we forget Jerusalem. But the big idea is that maybe Daniel has his windows open towards Jerusalem and he's facing towards Jerusalem because he wants to consistently be reminded, this is who I am. I'm Jewish and my kingdom is elsewhere. Wow, that's powerful, huh? Babylon's not my, it's not my ultimate future. My ultimate future is someplace else. It was a consistent reminder in what we would describe as its faith. He's by faith living into the future that God has for him. And so, number one, praying. We pray by faith. We pray recognizing that the types of circumstances we may be going through, um, we might not get the, the answer to our prayers that we're expecting. Uh, again, we have to be reminded of this because even Jesus, when he prayed, he didn't get the answer that he wanted. Father, if there's any other way than the cross, but nevertheless, let your will be done. So again, like I said, this is not a magic pinata in the sky where you just ask and somehow you get what you think you deserve. This is prayer is, is a hard, rigorous work that says, I want to align my life with the one who gives life, who's responsible for life, who sustains life, who delivers life. And uh, so we see, number one, it involves this posture phase. Secondly, it involves, uh, we see it, it's to be done and how, should we sh how we should pray in every circumstance with frequency. So we see that Daniel has developed this, this habit, long habit, in a long direction. Most scholars believe that at this particular point in the story, Daniel's like 70 to 80 years old. So he totally would qualify for the vintage Bible study. <laughs> All right? Legit. Legit. I'm almost, by the way, there. I'm ready. I'm almost ready for that vintage Bible study, by the way. Like, I got about another six months, and I'm ready to go. And uh, the point that I would make is this, is that, that Daniel is literally in retirement, right? He's, he's lived a long life. If there's anybody that could sit back and be like, I deserve to just have my own time off, right? 
is, is Daniel. But Daniel is just like, you know, he's pressing and he's still praying. He's still going in, in an act of defiance against the state saying, you can't take away my heart and devotion to Yahweh. Gotta love this about Daniel. Um, but he prays in every circumstance and with frequency because he's trained himself to do so. Um, lastly, is what happens when we pray. What happens when we pray? Number one, um, prayer connects us to God's kingdom. That just seems so evident in the story. Daniel is so seeking the heart of God. He's able to hear what God has to say. That's why he's able to give these dreams and the interpretations of dreams. That's why he's no doubt able to just stand for the kingdom of God, even when every other earthly, powerful, militaristic, world, you know, powerful kingdom is, is in opposition against him. Daniel's like, I'm standing for God's kingdom. How? Because, because Daniel had developed this heart and practice of, of prayer so consistently that he was able to just be in alignment, to live in agreement with the kingdom of God, God's kingdom. I think many of us it's so easy for us to not have cultivated a lifestyle or a life or lifestyle of prayer that it's easy for our hearts to not be in agreement with God's kingdom. So what the question is, what kingdom are we living in agreement with? That's uh, the question you got to answer, isn't it? Like, what are our hearts oftentimes living more in agreement with than God's kingdom? That's the question that we wrestle with. It's what Paul would later go on to say in the New Testament. He said, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and other, other things that are, that are so constantly trying to influence us. But prayer, what it does, it taps us, connects us in the very kingdom and the heart of God. Uh, secondly, that prayer cultivates compassion. It cultivates compassion. Uh, big question that I was thinking about with regard to Daniel, that Daniel has served faithfully multiple world militaristic superpower leaders, despots. In other words, men that were responsible for manipulation, for ruin, casting men, women, and children into dens of lions. Many of us were like, it's kind of a toxic scenario I'm living in, and I don't know if I can like faithfully say, dude, talk about toxic scenario. Like, Daniel lived in it. I mean, he lived under rulers and leaders that were straight up toxic and destructive. And yet Daniel is so deeply committed to serving these guys. Again, obviously there's boundaries that, that Daniel says, I'm not going to cross, just like there should be boundaries that we say we're not going to cross either. But the point that I'd make is this, that Daniel had this deep sense of compassion that allowed him to continue to see the needs around him in his life so that he can re-engage with those specific needs. And I was thinking about this in a parenthetical statement that both apathy and dis disdain are not kingdom traits. So Daniel could have taken this apathetic approach and been like, ah, life kind of stinks. This whole kingdom stuff is pretty bad, pretty messed up. I'm just going to veg out, pull away, disengage, not have any involvement. I'll just stand on the sidelines and I'll complain and critique the entire system because it's just, it's not going my way. Apathy is not a kingdom trait. Neither is disdain, which is the other counter- Emotion that can oftentimes arise in our hearts, like, I hate this thing. It's horrible. It's a bad situation. I don't like the way it's heading. I don't like what's happening. I'm going to move away. I'm going to become critical and overly obsessive over what's not going right or what is not going the way that I think it should be going. And it becomes a sense of disdain. Both apathy and disdain are not kingdom traits. So how is Daniel able to avoid these two human emotions? And I, honestly, I, I only think it was because Daniel was so committed to praying. 
it reshaped the entirety of his heart and the posture of his life and his ability to actually have compassion towards these leaders that were just horrible people. And then finally, prayer ultimately calls us into action. We see this most notably with Daniel, is that as he prays, he's you know, receiving words from God, he's stepping into these things, that we oftentimes discover that prayer leads us to become, in a lot of ways, just even the answers to our own, own prayers. You know, God, help that you know, person that's in need to help pay their rent this month. And you begin to find, like, man, maybe, maybe I can shuffle some things over here and not spend so much money for dinner over here and not go to, you know, scout coffee five times a day and, you know, be $50 less. Um, maybe, maybe if I just, you know, held back some things, I might be able to have some extra money that I can help someone out with. The Lord sometimes moves in our hearts in these types of ways that we become kind of the answer to this. It calls us to action. So I want to finish with just two thoughts, and then I'm going to have my good friend come on up, and he'll share with you a little bit of testimony and story about what God's done in his life. So what are, what are some calls to action that we can do ourselves? Number one, I would just highly recommend begin to cultivate a practice of prayerfulness in your own life. Um, I taught in this several months ago. Um, I would highly recommend just going on our website, did an entire teaching series on prayer. Recommend checking that out. I go through some very practical steps on how to do that and the ways in which you can do that. Um, the one most simplest things I would say, um, most of us have smartphones. Set three, um, three reminders throughout the day, morning, noon, and evening, to just say pray. Just pause. Just, just let it go, and when it dings, when it rings, you can just pause, right? Wherever you're at, you can be standing in line at Trader Joe's, and when it dings, you just, again, you're like, what, what should I pray? Fancy you ask. Um, you've already been get, actually given some uh, information. Jesus says, when you pray, pray th- like this, our Father who art in heaven. So in case you're like, I don't know what to pray, like I feel, you know, I don't have any words. That happens all the time, but Jesus gives us words. Just begin to pray, like our Father who's in heaven. Your name is holy. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in Trader Joe's. <laughs> Forgive my sins just as I've forgiven others. And, and here's what I often find. When I, when I do that, my heart begins to riff off of those words. So in that, uh, always, almost without exception, always, whenever I come to that, like, forgive us as I've forgiven others, I begin to think of people in my mind uh, that maybe either I haven't forgiven or I need to keep on the forefront of my mind of forgiving who've hurt me, who've caused hurt and pain and sorrow and so on. And then I have to go back and just like, Lord, Jesus, help me to forgive. Just as you've forgiven me, just as I've received grace, help me to be gracious. And I, and I find that, that that little template prayer becomes a living prayer. It's, again, it's a practice. Just like anything. Just like, you know, waking up first thing in the morning and turning on your phone to Instagram. That is a practice. It didn't just happen. You cultivated that. And daily, you cultivate it. Just like a practice. We binge watch, you know, The Office, like five shows at a time. It's a practice. We've just, we've developed that. I'm, again, no judgment. I do the same thing. My point is that it's a practice. I'm just encouraging you to think about incorporating other practices in your life that are actually transformative um, and transformational to the vitality and the longevity of your spiritual walk. And then secondly, uh, pray with the church community. Uh, did you know that every week we, we gather for a pre-church service uh, prayer time um, at 10 o'clock, like 5 till 10, 9.55. We usually gather back there and we just pray. We're going to be doing that when we switch to two services. We'll be doing that at 8 o'clock 
um, my encouragement to you would be maybe you can join with us. Just join to pray with us as we pray for God's kingdom to come and we pray for the leaders that are serving in multiple different ways on this campus as they're giving their time and their energy to, you know, moving dials and changing diapers and teaching scripture and, you know, playing guitars and doing a variety of different things. Uh, just in, in, I would invite you to begin to pray, step into praying for this community. And it's very likely, it's very possible. Again, if your experience is one of feeling dried up and feeling disconnected or feeling frustrated, then maybe you got to change the approach and step into new ways uh, where the Holy Spirit's moving and to begin to receive the vitality and the life that God has for you. So I'm done. I'm going to have my good friend. Where is he at? Come on down. Dave Smith. Why don't you guys give him a little round of applause. He'll, he's going to share with you a little story that God has uh, taught him, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. Awesome. Yeah. Brian, thanks for the opportunity to share. Yeah. Um, I just want to share with you guys a little bit of how the Lord's been speaking to me and uh, what's been going on the past couple months. Um, first, I want to pray. I'm a little nervous. I see all you guys out here, and I don't do this a lot, but Lord, just speak through me. May the things that you've shown me um, just come out in my words, and may they be your words, not mine. Uh, just speak boldly uh, through me, Lord. Um, I have some notes because I didn't think I would be able to remember everything, so I'm just going to kind of go through them. I only have five minutes, I think, so I'll try to work through it kind of fast. Um, that's kind of how it's been going on, too. This whole process has kind of like been trying to drink from the waterfall, is how I like to try to describe it. But um, really how it started, well, a bit of background. So I've been a Christian for about 20 years, uh, got saved probably in high school around that time, and um, it's been a, you know, like all of us, we have experiences of high, where that fire just burning bright and everything, and then we have times where it's just in areas of complacency, and you have lulls and, and dry spells, so... I'd say the past um, few years, I've just kind of been in this comfortable, complacent life. Maybe that's just life on the Central Coast where, you know, the, the weather never changes and everything's just easy and we just can kind of coast along and not really um, kind of pay attention to what's really important out there. So that's kind of where I've been. Um, a few months ago, Brian had mentioned how he set notifications on his phone to uh, remind him three times a day to pray. And so I did that. I set it at 6 a.m., in the morning, that's usually when I'm, I'm up reading my Bible before I go to work and um, drinking my coffee and things like that. And then I would set it for noon, you know, where I'm eating lunch or usually have a break in, in my day. And then also at 6 a.m. where that's usually after my day and kind of just interrupts my time, whether I'm going home or I'm at home. Um, but I would, I would do this. And so those reminders would come in and I would just be interrupted. And in my heart or in my mind, I would just want to pray. And I'd pray for things that I'd need that I desired change in my life. And so through that, God just like picked me up off the bleachers and put me on the, on the playing field and um, gave me the ball, kind of, so to speak. So what had happened through that, kind of just to begin, um, a friend of mine had mentioned to me how he is able to download audiobooks and books through our public library system um, to his phone. And I have a lot of windshield time, so I started doing that. I, I just downloaded some books and did some nonfiction, fiction. But the first book that really kind of started me on this process was Safely Home by Randy Alcorn. And each book, 
brought up a topic and then put me in motion to more questions and um, just kind of got me excited. So Safely Homes about uh, the Christian life in, in communist China and the struggles and the suffering that take place there just every day of, of living out as a Christian. Um, so through that, I started asking myself, like, or asking the Lord in my prayer, like, what does that, what compelled the characters in this book to, to undergo such suffering and to um, live as Christ uh, in prison and, and all the things that they've, that they've suffered? And I know about martyrs and how did they do it? And um, that led me to another book where I think answered that question was uh, in heaven. So Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I would totally recommend everybody here read it. If you haven't read it yet, please do, because it impacted me in such a great way. It shows us what the Bible says about heaven. It's not something that we can just pretend, you know, is up in the clouds and um, doesn't really mean a whole lot other than, than that. But the Bible is very descriptive of what it actually is, and it's a restored earth. It's, it's as physical as it, as it is right here, right now, and we get to be in a glorified body, and that is just so incredible. And so that became my focus. I started looking towards that as opposed to just looking down in my everyday. So that kind of brought on a new question, new, to- new topic, and I, I picked up Desiring God and by John Piper, and um, the big point in that is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And that is that answers the question of life. That is why we are here. We're here to glorify God. And the second part is by enjoying him forever. We get to enjoy God. It's not just something that um, that we just that we just do. We actually just get to feel and get to enjoy and feel full in, in this life. And then the question kind of came out of there was um, how do we enjoy God? What does that actually look like? And so I was led to another book by John Piper, and that's Let the Nations Be Glad. And the answer, the question that came out of that was, um, or the main point out of that was, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so to be satisfied in God, what does that mean tangibly? How does that, what does that look like? So to be satisfied is like what we see in, in John 15, where God is the vine, we are the branches. When we are attached to the vine, we are just full of the nutrition and all that is necessary for us to thrive for eternity. And um, God is the source of all of that. And so the next question that came up after that is, um, how do I do that in my flesh? How do I do that here? And, you know, God, just help me figure this thing out. And so he led me to another book, uh, The Forgotten God by Francis Chan. And that is all about the Holy Spirit. And the awesome part about the Holy Spirit is that he is God with us in our flesh, that we get to experience God, walk with God in our flesh. We don't have to wait till heaven until we die. Like, we are living that out here in our flesh with him. So he is, you know, through the vine, we are able to receive all that he, is, he has given us. And through the Holy Spirit, he is, he is walking through our struggles, walking through our trials. So that is how those martyrs, we're able to endure such pain and such suffering. And, you know, when we're called to Christ, we are asked to bear, bear our own cross. And we are to partake in Christ's sufferings. So when we pray, danger comes about. We, we aren't safe anymore as opposed to what this world has to offer. But, but with Christ, we are safe. And, and we get to bear that cross, bear that suffering 
you know, along with Christ. So, you know, along the way here, my, my perspective was changed. So I no longer was focusing on the things in front of me right here, but I, I put my focus on things ahead. And one of the things I, I do for work is um, I've trained people before in, uh, in a special driving, safe driving course. And one of the main points, the very first point of that is aim high in steering. So aiming high, looking, looking far, maybe 20 seconds in front of you, you are able to see and catch what's going on up there ahead. And by doing that, you're still able to see low. You don't miss out what's going on up here because you have peripheral vision. But if you focus below, focus on this, you miss out. You can't see what's up here. So instead of looking at the, the dots in the road, you can kind of see ahead of you. So in, in this life, if you can look at what's down below, or if you look at what's ahead, you're going to catch what's down here. You're going to be able to live as Christ down here. But your focus and your, your intent is on, on heaven, on what he has um, promised to us and what he is, is preparing to us, preparing for us now. Um, so, let's see. All the while, I think I can feel the enemy kind of trying to keep me quiet, trying to keep me uh, back on the bleachers because he knows that things are, are going to be stirred up. I get to speak in front of you guys and share this with you guys today, and he doesn't want me to do that. He wants me to be quiet, um, but I won't. And um, I hope that, you know, this can encourage encourage the body, edify the body. And um, I, I just want to, let's see, I think that's, yeah, I think that's it. I just don't want to be complacent anymore. I want to, I want to live as Christ and um, I don't want the enemy to, to knock me down. Trials came up over the summer and uh, because of my new perspective, I was able to kind of look at those trials a little differently. And um, I think that's what's going to happen. I think in life we're going to have trials. We're going to have times of suffering. Uh, but we know that, that with the Holy Spirit that it is God with us. He's walking with us. And we have direct access to the vine for all the nutrition, everything that we need in life. So... Thanks for being defiant. I want to finish with the uh, same question that I started with. And uh, how about we all stand and we're going to just have a moment to go to the table and respond and to worship. I'll have the worship team come on up as well. And the question that I started with, I think we have a slide for that, don't we? Maybe from there we go. All right, so... In summary, two questions to really ponder and think about. Number one, what is God speaking to you? What's he calling you into? Um, how do we, if San Luis Obispo, 805, is the ninth most unchristian, post-Christian city in America, what are you doing to defy that? Because I'll tell you what, if you do nothing... You'll just get sucked into that vortex. Culture's strong. Pervasive. But my encouragement is to have that same degree of defiance that we see not only in Daniel, but even in Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, 
He despised its shame. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And those who are in him share not only in his humiliation, but also in his glory. And that's the deep joy that we have. And then finally, how should we respond? What does response look like for you? Because it's going to look differently for most of us. For some, it's repentance. It's turning from sin. It's turning from our ways. It's turning from actions that we know are destructive to us or weights or practices that are just not helping our souls grow. They're kind of causing them to shrink. Um, for others, it's, uh, it's developing new habits, new practices that actually look like Jesus. For others, it might look like getting involved in, in a church community, like actually divi- diving in, digging in, being a part of the family where you can grow and use the gifts that God's given you. So wherever it's at, wherever you're at, uh, my encouragement to you 